This is Metal Mike, and in this episode, we talk to a metal legend, Don Dokken. We hear all about Dokken's new album, When Heaven Comes Down, that's coming out in October. We also hear about the classic albums like Back for the Attack. We discuss the track Dream Warriors. We talk about 1990 when the band split and he did Up from the Ashes. Lots of cool stuff, man. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Check it out. Well, Don, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How are you? I'm doing good, Mike. I mean, everything's good. I just got home last night from Massachusetts, and we had a great concert, about 7,000 people, and it was awesome. That's Perfect awesome. weather, 70 degrees, no rain. I was a happy guy. <laughs> that is awesome, man. So big news for Dokken. Uh, when Heaven Comes Down is coming out on the 27th, uh, what can fans expect? Well, you've heard the record, and... Uh, I think it's an amazing record, and I know every band says that. You know, it's been 10 years since Broken Bones, then we put out the lost tapes, but it's been a long time since we put out a new record. It took a long time to write, but I think every song in this album is killer. The proof in the pudding is we put out our first video, Fugitive, already got a half a million hits. Yeah, both that and Gypsy, man, sound really cool. You know, got the classic sound and uh, the melodies. That's what I love. It's like those melodies that just, you listen to it a few times, man, and it's it's stuck in your head. <laughs> it's in your head, especially Gyp- both of them. Gypsy, yeah, I think it's a great chorus. You know, we took a weird turn into the animated style. We actually had a girl from Poland draw that by hand, but uh, that video's going through the roof. Maybe because we waited, it was a good thing. <laughs> One thing I got to ask you is about the title. So most fans will recognize that When Heaven Comes Down is a track off Tooth and Nail. Any reason to choose that for the album title? It's always been a kind of a habit of mine. I've always named the records and, you know, Breaking the Chains, then there was Tooth and Nail. The only album that was called different was Under Lock and Key. But the truth was, we wrote a song called Under Lock and Key. At the last minute, we changed the chorus, so... That's why it's called Under Lock and Key, Back the Attack. So I always, I don't know why, it's a habit of mine. Long Way Home, uh, Hell to Pay, uh, Lightning Strikes Again. We've done 13 albums now. But I always seem to name our records after a song I've written. But the reason for Heaven Comes Down was because I'm watching the world, you too, go to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. Murder, fentanyl, drugs, people taking you know, AR-15s and killing children in grammar schools. That that shit didn't happen in the 80s, man. Nah, you're, you're right. It, it, stuff is messed up, and that's just, uh, that's putting it lightly. You know, we got the Russians trying to take over the world, the Chinese, and the Ukraine war, and it's just like in the fentanyl, everybody's not dying of fentanyl addiction at the Russians. That's a good way of doing it, you know, to undermine our American society by dipping fentanyl into the country and killing everybody. So everything's changed. And that's why I said, that's probably how the heaven comes down because it actually feels like heaven comes coming down. Yeah. Uh, for the rest of the songs on this, or we've got a lot of like, is there a lot of deep uh, meaning or, or, you know, heavy stuff? Because with you, I mean, let's face it, I, I always look at you as more of kind of like a moody writer. Like, you're not really like the party anthem guy. So is this... What kind of lyrical contents on the rest of this album? Yeah, I mean, you know, people, I hate it when they call us a hair band, because <laughs> we were far from a hair band. If they listen, if, you know, we wrote songs like Kiss the Death, Lightning Strikes Again, Tooth and Nail. We weren't a pop band. 
So I, I kind of take offense to that hairband thing. We kind of got stigmatized as we came out in the 80s and we had long hair. But most of these songs in the record are all just about things I am inspired by, you know. Fugitive I wrote because I moved out of California and I uh, never thought I would. And now I live, you know, I bought like a villa up in a mountain with no neighbors, you know. And mm-hmm. and John said one day we're working and John goes, man, you become a fugitive. And I said, yeah, I'm a fugitive from life. And he goes, that's a good, that's a good title for the song. <laughs> So I wrote it. So I just get inspired when people say something, you know. I remember when I wrote Piss to Death, I don't know people thought. I actually wrote that song about AIDS because it was the middle of the 80s and everybody was talking about AIDS. And I said one day to Mick, well, Mick, I said, dude, there's this new thing and it's killing people. My uncle died of it. And I said, use a condom if you're, you know, getting girls. And Mick said to me, I'll never get AIDS. I only sleep with good-looking women. Oh and I laugh my ass off. <laughs> oh, I see. So if they're good-looking, they won't get the disease. I go, I don't think that disease cares if you're beautiful or fat and ugly. I said, you, you can get it. But he said that, and I just looked at him and went, what are you talking about? It's a disease, God sake, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's what I wrote Kiss to Death about. The lyrics are self-explanatory. You think you have this really great girl and she comes to your room and gives you the you know and she schmoozes you and you sleep with her and and you die you know she gave you the kiss of death so a lot of things like that what people say to me in a conversation will inspire me to write a song when it comes to shows i know you guys are out doing shows uh you're probably going to be you know touring for into next year you're going to bring george lynch along with you uh to open up and, and do stuff like you did uh you know this year and last year no just one show until the end of the year. How's the relationship with you guys hey, now? George is George. Yeah. Is it is it better, like, you know, we're, when you're in separate bands and then, like, you know, just to be able to be on a gig together and just play a couple songs, does that work best for your relationship? Well, like we we talked about it, you know, he first came out and did a couple songs at the end of the show. Then he put Lynch Mob back together. So they've been opening his whole band. And then he comes on stage, plays a couple songs. But... As George and I said, we're too old to argue anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Can't take the stress, but, but you know, George is very eccentric. I'm eccentric, and, you know, it's no secret we didn't get along from day one, and it ran its course, but you know, all these years later, it's like, you know, we don't ha- we're not BFF. You know, we don't hang out, even though he moved to New Mexico. I live in New Mexico. He moves to New Mexico. That's kind of funny. Yeah, that's that's a weird coincidence right there. Very strange. But, you know, George is George. I'm me, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's ran, it ran its course. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We yeah. did the reunion with George playing a couple songs, but, you know, I just said, okay, we're done, you know, with that. John Levin's my guitar player. He's been in docking longer than George. <laughs> I know. I was just thinking that. He's, he's probably like 20 years, hasn't he? 20 years. George was the band in eight. Wow. 
That is crazy. And everything that John's doing, man, on these new tracks uh, sounds killer. Sounds killer. Yeah, we really introduced the record. And, I mean, John will tell you openly, he grew up, because he's the youngest in the band, he grew up listening to Dawkins, and his favorite guitar player was George. So he's got that George Lynch style. As George said once at the press, John Levin plays me better than me. <laughs> <laughs> and it fits. I mean, that, that's what you need. You, you need that kind of a sound. That's what fits your music. The sound of the guitar, his, his scales, you know. But I tell John, do what you want, man. You know, you can spread your wings, you know, on other songs and just be John, you know. But that's just the way he plays, you know. I was looking back... Um just kind of doing some research about like power ballads, and and one thing that everybody kept saying and keeps going to is that Motley Crue, you know, was the first '80s glam band, whatever you want to call it, you know, to put out a power ballad or get big with a power ballad, you know, with Home Sweet Home. But you know, I'm looking back and I'm thinking like Alone Again was out before. Wouldn't you think you guys kind of were the first like LA '80s band to do a power ballad? No, I don't think so. I mean, Cinderella put out a ballad. Every rose has its thorn. The poison. Yeah. You know, during that time, you know, MTV wanted ballads. Yeah. And we delivered the out to the nail, done. And our the vice president of our company said, where's the ballad? And I said, we didn't write one for this record. And he said, well, get the hell out of my office and go write one. <laughs> oh, boy. I've heard that before. And I, and I went, uh, okay. So we were like, we were done. So I had to go home and dig through all my little cassette tapes of all the hundreds of songs I'd written, and I just found this cassette, and it said, Alone Again, what's that? I put it in the cassette player, and I went, oh, that's pretty good. So Jeff and I went in the studio and revamped it, and we put it in the record the last second, and it turned out to be an anthem, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I've heard that, Don, from a lot of people where, you know, labels are always encouraging the power ballads. Well, it was popular, and... You know, the original Alone Again, I think I wrote it when I was 21, and it just ended up in a box somewhere in my closet. So we basically just uh, got the lyrics and the chorus, and Jeff and I just kind of revamped it. And uh, I remember we were on tour for a year, and we'd done a bunch of videos, and the label said, we're done. And I said, well, what about Alone Again? And they said, well, we don't have a budget and all that stuff. So we were playing our last show at the... Uh, I don't know, some gig in Hollywood, the Palladium. So they just set a couple of guys down with video cameras and shot us, and, and we just stitched together, and that was Alone Again came out. I told the label, if you don't put it out, it's a big mistake. And they go, everybody loves that song. And they're like, yeah, we're done. But yeah, everybody was doing ballads. I mean, not just Motley. There was a million bands, but that's what MTV wanted. Yeah. So do Alone Again and just throw it out and see what happens, and it exploded. Yeah. What other kind of things did you feel pressure from back then from the labels? Did they they push you to look a certain way? Because it seems like it's it, you know it was like everybody was leather and spikes, and then everybody was lace and and glam. Well, was there any pressure to change the image? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was our mistake. You know, we started out we we're just jeans, leather jackets, whatever, and you know everybody started getting more and more spent. You know, David Lee Roth did that with the index and the lace and the very over-the-top outfits. And, and I think it was a mistake. We did Earn Rotten Key. We're all in these stupid outfits. And we did it. And I remember we all played. We spent like $10,000 in those outfits. We used them one time. 
on stage and I said, I can't play, I can't, I can't perform in this outfit, it sucked. And when I, and that, we just abandoned it. But that kind of stuck to us like blue with that picture of us on under lock and key. Yeah. You know, we look kind of glam, big, big hair, Aquanet, but it wasn't us. And I remember my manager saying to me, whenever I see you, Don, you're on your Harley, you're just wearing like leather pants, biker boots, leather jacket. You should just dress like that on stage. So I took all that glam shit and just threw it away right away. We were trying to stay current, but it wasn't us. Yeah. It was a mistake. Yeah. It seems like after that, for Back for the Attack, you had a more scaled back look, like you said, with leather and jeans and stuff like that. That was probably more... Yeah. Which who you were. Yeah. Yeah. We went like full blown, you know, just dress what you want to dress. I was in black, leather pants, boots, you know, and that was it. I just got rid of all that stuff, you know. I didn't want to do it in the first place, but it was go it's what was going on in MTV, you know? Yep. Everybody was glammy, except for Priest, you know, they were all studs in leather. <laughs> yep. For sure. And I I had to laugh that, you know, Halper probably said once when he thought he came out and probably told the world that he was gay. And he said, I used to go buy all my stage clothes at the S&M shops. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, the whole band went out and started doing the studs and the leather and went over the top with that. But I respected Metallica. You know, we toured with them. We played stadiums. And they just, you know, wore jeans and a T-shirt and... They were what they were, you know. They didn't follow the trend, and I respected them for that. And I think it was a mistake for us to try to be something that we weren't. Yeah. Like Metallica just did what they wanted and dressed the way they wanted. One one song I got to ask you about is uh, is Dream Warriors. How did Dream Warriors come about? In, in a sense of like, did, you know, did the Nightmare on Elm Street approach you guys to do a song, or was that a thing where like bands had to put a bid out for uh, to be in a movie like that? How did Dream Warriors come about? No, the director of, of Nightmare on Elm Street was a Dawkins fan, and he approached us and said, I have a movie coming out, and it's called Dream Warriors. That was the only song probably in my career that they told me what the chorus had to be. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, the movie's called Dream, Dream Warriors. And I said, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, so they sent, they sent me a, a rough edit of the movie, and the script so I could read what was going on about Freddie coming through the beds and Freddie's coming to them in their dreams. So I just watched the rough cut of the movie and read the script and we came up with the song Dream Warriors. Yeah, that's amazing because, I don't know, to me that song, maybe it's just because when I got into music as a kid, that was a song that I heard a lot. And I, I To this day though, man, I love it and, and it feels pretty natural. It doesn't feel like it's contrived or like forced. It feels pretty natural. You know, it's got like that, it's kind of eerie and creepy in the verses which fits to the, you know to what the movie's all about, and obviously the video is just like that's probably the biggest you know craziest video you guys ever did. Yeah, that was the first video when it came out when they still had VHS and you know you could rent videos at a store like Blockbuster, and we were one of the first bands that that video movie sold a million copies. Wow, which was great for us because. Our, our song was on it, and we were making a lot of money, you know, in royalties. And then the, they, when they did the second pressing of, of uh, Nightmare on Street, they took our song off the movie. <laughs> <laughs> because at the, at the end, I was like, oh, that sucks. Because they didn't want to pay the royalty, you know. But it was great playing with Robert England. I've met him many times since, and 
it's pretty straightforward. When I read the script, I lie awake and dread the lonely nights. I'm not alone. I wonder if these heavy eyes can face the unknown. All the lyrics are just about the movie. Yeah. So it was pretty easy to write. I just, I basically just wrote lyrics about the movie. Yeah, it's awesome. So awesome. And then, and then George, and George, George wrote like four riffs, and I said, "Look, it's a monster movie." And so George, is, he wrote that dark guitar riff, you know, dark. No, it's, I love that song. I mean, it's great. A lot of people think "Back for the Attack" I mean, is the best. What about what do you think? It's a good record, you know. It was our, one of our heavier records, and uh, we were right getting ready to go on the Monster Rock tour when that came out. You know, I just think we were we were in a we were in the zone, you know. You know, we sold a couple million records. We have platinum albums, and I think uh, back the attack that we had more freedom, mm-hmm. that we didn't have to commit to write some of the songs that wrote like "In My Dreams," "Just Got Lucky," "Alone Again," "The Hunter." You know, all the singles that were videos that I had written, we had the freedom to be more heavy on Back to the Attack. Yeah, no power ballad, really, on that one. You know, Heaven Sent is more of like, a, you know, it's laid back, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't call it a power ballad. No, and, you know, the video's dark. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we filmed it in a graveyard. <laughs> yes, it's so, we actually so did good. our last show. I remember that video. We, we played our last show with Aerosmith on the Burnett Vacation Tour. And we had to jump in the bus and drive to New Orleans, and and we filmed it in a graveyard, you know. But then they told us, you know, you're not allowed to go in the graveyard. You know, it's it's sacrilege. So if you look at the video next time, you see a lot of crosses in the front, and and we just put all our crew crew, crew members' names on them. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Good. I'm good to know. Did not know that. Yeah, we filmed like there was a cemetery. There was a fence. And we had to play in front of the fence because we weren't allowed to go in the graveyard. So, so you get to like ninety, and, you know, docking, you know, splits up, and you do, uh, you know, your solo album up for the ashes. You you got a lot of big players, man, like Mickey D and John Norum. Was the goal like I'm going to create this super group and I'm going to blow away, you know, the docking lineup, or was it just by chance? You just figured out like these were the best guys. What what were you thinking going into that selection of the lineup of the band? Well. You know, I knew that, you know, after the band split up on our very last show, doing the Monster Rock, but then we ended up in a lawsuit for like a year and a half because the band didn't want me to use the name Dawkin anymore. And I said, well, that's my last name. I have a right to use my last name. Right. But they sued me, and, and they won, and the judge said, you can't use the name Dawkin. And I was really pissed because the, the judge was about 80 years old. He didn't know shit. He was a moron. And I said, wait a minute. I can't use my God-given name. It's not made up. It's not like Nick Mars or Nicky Dick. It's right. a real name. Right. But the band had it in their head that they wanted to go on as Dokken, the three of them with a the new singer. And I, and I fought him tooth and nail use the pun and I said there's no way you're going to go on I mean I started docking five years before I met those guys so I was upset but you know I'm not a lawyer and a, you know I didn't think I needed to trademark the name docking to protect myself so the judge used the term all four of us were equal members it wasn't like another band where 
I owned everything. We split everything four ways. I make a dollar, they all made a dollar. And when I left, the judge said, well, you're a corporation, basically, the four of you. So if you're out of the band and the other three members are in, he was like, if your band was called Coca-Cola, you can't keep the name Coca-Cola. And I went, it's a, it was just legal bullshit. So I signed my deal with Geffen, and I knew Lynch was putting a band together, Lynch Mob, and I just thought, I'm going to put a super group together. And I did. Peter Baltus from Accept, yep. John Norm from Europe, Mickey, Mickey D just came out of King Diamond. Yep. Uh, and then I found this guitar player, I think it was Lars Ulrich that gave me a cassette. And Lars said, he took out this band out of Boston, Texas, and that was Billy White's band, and he was amazing. So I was trying to decide, do I take John Norum, or do I take Billy White, who was 18? And I said, all right, fuck it, I'll take them both. And I put a super group together. And I was really upset. I didn't want to call the album Don Dawkins. It was supposed to be just Dawkins. Mm -hmm. So, and, and David Geffen wasn't happy either. <laughs> because when you put your surname on a record, a lot of people see it as a solo record. Like, you you just said it already. Oh, it's your solo album. It wasn't a solo album. It was just a Dawkins album. Right. But I had to put my name Don on it, and I was really unhappy about that. But the judge said, you can't use the name Doc. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, why don't you sue my father and my grandfather and my grandfather? <laughs> you know, I said, well, this is my last name. You can't take my name away from me. And but the guy was an old crony judge, and and so he did what they call legal terms split the baby. The three of them couldn't use Dawkins, and I couldn't use Dawkins. Huh. So that's why I put out the album Don Dawkins. Wow, I did not know that. That's how, that's how that went down. Uh, I, I can't imagine they, they, that they wanted to go on with uh, only Logan as the lead singer, and I was like, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I fought it, and you know, we all spent a lot of money in court for a year and a half, and. The judge split the baby, you know. They couldn't use it. I couldn't use it. So, you know, several years, I just kind of stepped out of the scene for a while and started working on my next record after up in the Astros. But the truth is, you know, that band, we had a lot of success. We sold out Japan. We sold out every place in Europe. We sold out America, doing like, you know, three, 4,000 people. And then Lynch had his hit, uh, Wicked Sensation, which is a great song, mm -hmm. you know. So, but then, you know, then the real reason everything fell apart was uh, I was on Geffen, and they signed Nirvana and Guns N' Roses, and they, and they kind of saw the same thing, like, oh, Dawkins, a hairband. You're old school. You're 80s. You know, this is the new... You got to remember in 91, it was Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, yep. Soundgarden. You know, all the grunge bands came out, and everybody said, well, the 80s bands were done. And then they started using that stigma of, they're a hair band. Yep. And I'm like, well, you obviously didn't listen to a docking record. We were far from a pop band. Right. You know, we, we had our dark songs. We had our In My Dreams, Just Got Lucky. Then we had Heaven's Dance, Tooth and Nail, Lightning Strikes Again, It's the Death. We had a metal side to it. Yep. But, you know, I think all the 80s took a hit. You know, 80s bands. I was I was pretty upset, actually, when Metallica did that video. And in their video, they're throwing darts at a picture of Kip Winger. Yeah. And, and that was just 
I thought I thought that was really in bad taste. Yeah. Remember that video? And they're yeah. throwing darts. And yeah. The picture winger. So here, Metallus exploding. You know, they're basically telling the whole world that you know winger sucks. You know. Yeah. That must have really hurt Kip. You know. And I took offense to that. That wasn't very cool of him to do that. But, and then he had Beavis and Butthead, where Beavis has a Metallica T-shirt, and Bud is where, and then the goofy guy in the cartoons wearing a Winger T-shirt. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a put put down on Kip, and I thought that was wrong because Kip is a great musician. They wrote great songs. The great singer, they had great hits, but it kind of it kind of killed his career for a couple of years. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I I think Kip Winger is a super talent. I I loved Winger, and I agree with you. That is kind of bullshit. And right, it sends that kind of message that oh, this stuff's lame. You know what I mean? And, and it it wasn't helping any. And you know the the cause of the '80s bands at that point. Yeah, it was insulting. Like you know, in that Metallica video, it was kind of like saying if you like Winger, you know that's you know you're a nerd. Yeah. And that wasn't cool because Winger put out some amazing records. Yeah. Kip is very talented. They're in Japan right now, I just heard, because my room manager's there. And they're selling out every night in Japan. But it really hurt them, that Beavis and Butthead thing. And, you know, the video. I mean, why did they put that shot in there? They obviously had a cross, you know, to bear against him. I would have never done that. I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I'll just put it this way. Metallica is now the biggest band in the world. You know, they play stadiums. They can play anywhere they want. They play the Antarctic. They're the biggest rock band, heavy metal band in the world. But they didn't need to, to like, throw Kip under the bus. That was my opinion. Yeah, well, I'm with you. So, Dysfunctional, I was reading the other day, I didn't know this either, that Dysfunctional was supposed to be follow-up, album like a solo album of yours but then in turn label saying hey, we got to bring back all the guys so, so were you ha- what did you think about when that happened were you okay with that or, or were you against it at first well it started out strange because that was like i said my second i hate to see said solo album i i got my name back by then i'd gone back to court and got my name docking back but it was going to be whatever you want to call it my second solo album and by then you know we'd all made a lot of money and i got tired of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a record, and I said, screw it, I'm going to build my own recording studio. So I did. So I owned my own recording studio, so there was no money, there was no budget. And I just started writing that album. And then Jeff wanted to come back in the band, Mick came back in the band, and basically Jeff and I wrote that entire record. We were done. The album was finished, you know. And then we signed to Columbia, and John Collager said, you know, I, I preferred if you had all the original members. And I said, I don't think I can do that because George and I don't get along, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it won't work. Cause I knew George and I don't get along. So the album was finished. George came back in the band. He played one solo on the record. That was it. George really had nothing to do with Dysfunctional. Uh, I basically wrote the entire record and with Jeff and Mick. And George came back, played one solo. I gave him a credit on Too High to Fly. He wrote that solo. Mm-hmm. But Columbia, we signed to Columbia, and they said, we don't want to sign you unless it's all original members. So I went, shit. All right. So I talked to George. He came back, and the rest is history. It was a great album. Yeah. And I got to write whatever I wanted. And the cool thing about Dysfunctional was we didn't have any rules. 
like write a power ballad or write a commercial right. song like in my dreams i just i just wrote whatever the hell i wanted and i experimented with sitars and crazy instruments and you know because i had no budget i had no record deal so columbia said we want george back in the band and he came back and that was the end of that that's a great album and i gotta ask you one thing i've always wondered about too high to i fly. love that record yeah. too high to fly Almost, yeah. it feels like uh, almost putting off like a Jim Morrison vibe. Are you a Doors fan, or were you were you trying to bring in a little bit of it? Because I always felt like it just reminded me of the Doors a little bit. That song, I don't know. Huge Doors fan. Uh, when we play it live, I actually break out to a breakdown in the song, and I actually recite some of Jim's lyrics mm. when he said, "You know, you know, I do it live, and I say." Uh, the song, uh, This Is The End, and uh, My Only Friend, The End, The End Of Darkness, yada yada. So I do this little tribute to Jim Morrison in the middle of Too High, and if you ever see the video of, uh, if you ever watch Life From The Sun, when Red Beast in the band, I sing a part of a Doors song in that song. Oh. Jim Morris was a poet. Yeah. He was more of a poet, and his lyrics, I always loved him. And people forget that, you know, they were the house band at the Whiskey. Yep. So it was Too High to Fly is an homage to Jim Morrison because nobody really knows why he died. He was young. He was fine living in Paris. And he just, you know, dies in a bathtub. And that's what I heard that when he died. I said, well, I wrote Too High to Fly, you know, and I've lost a lot of friends to drugs. I've never done drugs myself. But, you know, I, I, I think everybody admit, you know, in the 80s, everybody was coked up out of their mind. They used to say on the Sunset Strip, if you buy cocaine, it probably came from Carlos Escobar. <laughs> I but it, it, wasn't my, it wasn't my drug of choice. I was more of a champagne wine guy, you know. And unfortunately, that's why the band broke up, because Jeff and Mick and George had gone down the rabbit hole and they were coked up out of their minds, man. Gotcha. That's got to be tough. So, I, yeah, it's hard to keep a band together. And, I mean, even on Monsters, when we did Monsters of Rock, and they had all these cameras, and George would go into the solo, and the cameras would swing over, and there's no George on stage. And I'm looking around going, where the hell's George? I mean, I hear him playing, but he's not on stage. Because he would walk behind his marshals, and his roadies giving him lines of coke. And that drove me crazy. And I said, guys, I mean, we're only playing, you know, 90 minutes. Can you guys just not do coke for an hour and a half? And it drove me crazy. You know, it just made me crazy. They were all coked up out of their minds. And so that's what kind of brought the end of Doc. And because I, I always say, if I was into cocaine, we probably all would have got along. <laughs> but the three of them would go off in the hotel room and, sit in the back of the bus and do coke for days. And I'd just be in my bunk reading the book, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my thing. And it destroyed the band. I'm not, we're not the only band that's been destroyed by drug abuse. Right. You know, when you watch the Irving and Nikki Six owned it, you know, the guy was, you know, got up heroin and was dead at the hospital, you know. Yeah. He owned it, you know. He was a heroin addict. So a lot of the bands were doing coke or heroin and, it just wasn't my thing. I, I'm not trying to puff myself up, but I was addicted to writing music. 
Uh, shows. I couldn't wait to get home and, and, and start writing again. Pick up my guitar, start writing music. I had a guitar in every room of the house. You know, I, I, I played my guitar two, three hours a day. I just, it was my cocaine, you know? Definitely. Well, Don, man, I appreciate your time. I wish you lots of luck with When Heaven Comes Down. Thanks for all the great music, man. Been a fan for many years, so I appreciate you. All right, Bob. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our time rocking with Dokken. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Rock on!